Good morning. Good morning. This is John 17, 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Thank you, Heidi. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the great joys of this is, is we get to look now into a very in, uh, intimate and personal part of Jesus' life. He's going to be speaking, speaking to his Father. Now, just reminding you of where we've been and where we're at. John 13 through 16 is, is this intensive time of teaching. Jesus knows he's about to die. And so this is his last big teaching to his disciples, to his followers. And, and this is important for us. It, it's, it's, I, can't, I keep thinking about how incredibly important this is. This is his last words. He knows it. I mean, when someone knows they're going to die and they have some things they want to say, those are things you pay attention to. I have at times been with people who are dying. And they never say, man, I wish I'd have got that bigger house. Man, I wish I'd have got that car. If they express regrets, it's regrets concerning relationships. I wish I'd have made that right. I wish I'd have spent more time here. I wish I'd invested in that person's life. I wish that if there's regrets. And oftentimes when a person is dying, they're also saying, hey, you, I just want you to know you've impacted my life tremendously. Thank you, you. And it's these words of, of kindness and, and wisdom. And Jesus is speaking in 13 through 16 and teaching his disciples, here's what you need to know. This is what's really important. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. He talks about the work of the Spirit. He talks about the importance of serving. He talks about how much he loves them. He talks about these things. You know, and, and if we can remind ourselves of the situation, it helps us understand better what he's talking about. And now he's, they've left the upper room. You know, they've had, they've had their last supper. They've left the upper room. They're walking through the Kidron Valley. Jesus continues teaching. And all of a sudden, he stops, it says. And he looks towards heaven, and he starts praying. And so now, he's praying, and he's also teaching. But we can learn so much from this prayer, because this prayer, through the whole part of John 17, is going to be Jesus. He's going to be talking specifically about his Father in a very personal way. Then he's going to be talking, praying for the disciples, and then he's going to be, uh, then, and th the third part is he's going to pray for us. All the people who come after, he's going to pray for us in this prayer. This is an incredible prayer for us to pay attention to. And he looked towards heaven and he prayed. That's, that's a very typical Jewish way of praying. Um, um, as Christians, what we tend to do is bow our heads and close our eyes. And it's this idea of reverence, and that's not wrong. But for Jews in those days, and Orthodox Jews in this day, they look up and they start talking. You know, they look up and start talking. And, and everyone can hear. And so Jesus looks towards heaven. 
and he starts praying. He knows he's about to die. In the very next chapter, he's going to be arrested. And so here he is at his most vulnerable. This is at his most raw, at his most honest, and he's very focused and very direct. And um, the first thing I want you to see is he's going to talk about this. There is an eternal love. There is an eternal love. And that's, that's verses 1 and 5. Now, this whole thing is all woven together, and so we're going to jump around a little bit. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He's talking about glorifying. He's talking about th this, this whole idea. Glorify me. I glorified you. And it just, it just goes back and forth. And this taps into, you know, some of these verses and earlier verses in John and in the other Gospels, actually, is what forced the early church and I mean, literally hemmed them in to the doctrine of the Trinity because there was too much going on that could be separate. It was, it was a oneness that they, they, hadn't been, they hadn't thought of before. And, and it just, it's, it's amazing what it does. To glorify is to praise or to bring to light, to shine light on it, like illumination. And he's saying before the world began, the Son was glorifying the Father. The Father was glorifying the Son. In other scriptures we see, the Spirit was glorifying the Son and the Father and they Him. There is this mutual glorification that's going on, giving themselves to one another, giving themselves for each other, serving each other. When I went on that trip to Colorado, one of the things that got me was just standing on that mountain was the glory that was spread out before me. It was, it was a sunny day, and it was just illuminated. It was almost so sunny that times where the, it almost hurts your eyes reflecting off all the snow because it's so white, and it was, it was just awe-inspiring. I love to tell people about it, and, 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 and it's that same old thing. We all know this. Pictures never do justice for what you saw with your own eyes, you know? And every once in a while, I'll meet someone who goes, you went to Crested Butte? I said, yeah, I did. I did too. I said, did you go to the top? Yes, I went to the top. Awesome, right? Yes, awesome. There's this mutual joy in both of us glorifying together. Someone else understands. Someone else receives and understands it. So I want you all to go to Colorado. <laughs> go to Crested Butte. <laughs> go, no, you, yeah, don't go to the top. It's, it's the hard way down. <laughs> yeah. So what happens in terms of another person? This is something we know. It's, it's funny how sometimes you know things, but you, you don't always know how to express it. We know what it is to glorify. When you, when you love a person, you, you work at it. You, you work at loving that person. It is work to love that person. When you love a person, you work at serving them. You work at pleasing them. You know, parents know this automatically. You have children, and sometimes it can be work to love that child. Sometimes in the middle of the night when that child is crying and you, they, you tried feeding them and you tried changing them and they're still crying and you don't know why they're crying, you're, you, you feel that, that frustration, and yet you work. You say, what else can I do? You work at serving you work at pleasing. This is what happens 
with a woman and a man that love each other in such, a, such an incredible way. You give yourself to that person. You adore that person. Not only that, you want, to see, you want others to see how incredible that person is, right? What parent doesn't like to show pictures of their baby? Why? Because I want you to enter into this joy. I want you to enter into this joy, right? And so what do we have here? We have, we have this sense where we get this great joy from others experiencing what we experience. C.S. Lewis has written extensively on this. It's, it's a beautiful, in one of his books, it's, it's a beautiful passage where he just talks about how, how he struggled um, when he first became a Christian and he was reading through the book of Psalms and he has a book on the Psalms and he explains, he was reading through the book of Psalms and he says, thanking God for things, blessing God for being, you know, blah, blah, blah. But this whole thing of worship me, glorify me, seems so self-centered, seems so needy right? And he, and he wrote about this, and he, was, he talked about this process where suddenly he realized, he realized that we were made to glorify because that's where we find joy. We glorify events. We glorify mountains. We glorify people because we enjoy that. We get joy from it. And God says, glorify me. Why? Because you're going to get great joy from this. I don't need it. You need it. And so it's like two people. It's like two people who have, who have met. Um, I remember one time when one of our sons, Cody, he came home and he says, I've met this girl and uh, she's awesome. She's awesome. I think she's the one I've been looking for my whole life. And what he loved to talk about her because he wanted us to love her. And he got great joy from that. And we got great joy from that. See, God's saying, this is a mutual thing that's flowing. I'm granting you my son's glory. I'm glorifying you. Glorify me. You will find great joy in that. And interestingly, Jesus teaches, that's where you'll find freedom. That's not, a, that's not slavery. That's not a task. It's a pleasure. It's a joy. And so what happens? We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit since eternity past, adoring each other, pleasing each other, serving each other, loving each other. And this is key. This is really key for us because this helps us see that our God is a communal God. He's a God who's personal. He's a God who we have a relationship with. That is really important. He doesn't just want to show us love. Scripture teaches He is love. He is the definition of love. At the core of his being, he is love. It's his nature, totally inherent in who he is. And that's different. That's so radically different from any other world religion. And I know, I know, you know, you can kind of sum things up under and, and maybe not always do justice, but Eastern religions tend to be impersonal. There's an idea there of a transcendent reality, but it's a non-personal force in the universe. There's no God to talk to. There's no God to relate to. There's no God who relates to you. There's no God to connect to. So ultimately what happens, you lose your personal force into this transcendent reality, this impersonal force that holds the universe together. That's it. 
in Islam, it's, God is a unipersonal God. He's the, it's the byproduct. And one of the problems, the byproduct of this unipersonal God is that you cannot be, he cannot be eternally loving because before creation, there was nothing. So there was nothing to love. And so this God, Allah, has no, no history of love. And so you cannot be a God who is love if there's no one to love. Love, by definition, is communal. It's relational. And I, this, is, this is one of those passages. I mean, we, we took a rabbit trail last week so I could have more time. And I still feel like I can't. I'm barely scratching the surface. I can't. I want to explain it. And I'm not always sure. But if we think about it this way, what's the, what's the secret to a joyful, a life-giving relationship? It's where each person is praising and serving and loving the other, looking for a way to help the other person shine. That's what's supposed to be happening with a husband and a wife. And that's what happens when two people are in love. How can I serve you? How can I help you? When I was dating my wife and I was beginning to think, this is the woman I'm going to ask to marry me. One of the things I was searching for things to do, searching for ideas that would please her, make her happy, an interesting place to eat or or a picnic on, on, on the, uh, par- in the park on the, on the Potomac River, or just things, things that, can I just tell you, a picnic in a park by the Potomac River is not something I naturally would want to do. There's no motorcycles involved, all right? There's no big waves involved. There's no mountains involved, no skiing involved. There's no soccer balls, basketballs involved. You sit, oh, I struggle with sitting. If you ever, I, I get self-conscious. Sometimes, sometimes before we start, I'm up here and there's nothing to do for a couple of minutes while you guys are talking. It's at the break. And I'm sitting here. I'm doing all kinds of things. Why? Because standing still is difficult for me. Sitting still is difficult for me. Sitting still on the banks of a bucolic, lazy river is not exciting for me. That's not exciting for me. When my wife's family took me the first time to Cape Cod, which is a wonderful place to go, I love it. We went to the beach. There's no waves at Cape Cod. I don't know if you know this, but there's no waves there. There is actually a Cape Cod surfing association, and I'm just going, I don't get it. I don't know how. Maybe when a nor'easter comes or a hurricane, you get like a day or two. But there's no waves. Now, it's a beautiful place, cool, quaint villages that you can shop right up my alley, right? And, but I, I'm like, you guys, wait, you lay here for hours? Yeah. So what happened? I went to Cape Cod happily because it's my, my wife's heart love. She loves that place. We go back, and I love it too. I find great joy there. I find, because she finds great joy there. So this is what happens when two people are in love. How can I serve you? How can I help you? They serve each other and they get great joy from serving each other. This is why Paul writes so beautifully in Ephesians 5. He says, submit to one another in reverence of Christ. Right? And, and then he goes into wives. This is how you submit. Husbands, this is how you submit. Now, there doesn't mean there are no roles. 
Doesn't mean that, but it shows us how this is all a part of this mutual service and love and submission that God calls a marriage. And he even explains what's the purpose. He goes into great detail. And the purpose is, because he takes, takes it off of Christ looking forward to how the church will be in eternity. The purpose is, I have this person that I love and I think, what can I do to bring out the best in you to make you the best you can be? What can I do? That's my role as a husband. That's the, of the role of a wife. What can I do to make you the best you can be? How can I serve you? How can I help you? How can I love you? And this isn't something we've discovered. God made it this way. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in this beautiful dance of love. And that's why God created the universe. He lacks nothing. He's not relationally incomplete. So he didn't create this world, this universe, to fulfill a lack in his life. God isn't insecure. He did it to expand the love, to love and be loved, the joy that's involved in that. He didn't get it. He did it so he could love people, for others to experience his joy, to experience the beauty that God experiences. And when we accomplish something great, we feel it sometimes. Like an artist uh, creating something, a, a musician playing something beautiful. The point is, when we do that, why do we do that? Artists generally, now I know there's always exceptions to the rule. Artists generally, musicians generally, people who create generally, create for others. I've never met an artist who paints something beautiful and goes, yeah, but I don't want anybody to see it. I'm going to put it in my closet. Right? You say, no, wouldn't you like some? Artists say, yes, I'd love for people to see it. I think it's beautiful. Now, if they don't think it's beautiful, maybe they don't want people to see it. Maybe they're embarrassed by it. But when we create something that's good and wonderful and beautiful, when we create something. I remember talking to a guy one time who works at the shipyard, and, 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 and they, they uh, uh, aircraft years and years ago, aircraft carrier was finally leaving. It was done. And um, I, remember, I remember talking to him. He said, yeah, I sat there and I watched. I said, I... I was a part of making that. I made that. That sense of accomplishment. That sense, and, and saying, I made it. I want you to see that. So God created so that others could experience his love and his joy and his beauty. God has invited us in to this incredible dance that's going on in the Trinity. And I mean this... <laughs> with all the Star Wars I can muster, this is your destiny. This is our destiny. This is what we were made for. Darth Vader, when he said that, he was wrong. But this is what we were made for. We were made for worship. I mean, that's the default activity of our heart. Because the point is, we all worship. People that, people that don't come on a Sunday morning and worship others, people who might come here and go, no, nah, I'm not into this. They, okay, you may not worship them. You're worshiping something. Everybody is worshiping something. And the key here is, this can mean the difference between experiencing the joy of the Lord or experiencing frustration, disappointment, and meaninglessness. If you're experiencing frustration, disappointment, and meaninglessness, you need to stop and think, what am I worshiping? 
what is at the core of my heart? Because it's not working. Why do we get all bent out of shape sometimes when we get criticized? Why? Because we think reputation is the key to happiness. Why do we get frustrated and angry? Oh, I can do this. We get frustrated and angry when I realize I'm more sinful, more flawed than I would ever care to admit. You know, you look at yourself and you realize sometimes how bad you can be. Why do we get so upset and angry and frustrated with that? Well, part of that is because we think moral behavior is the key to joy. Why do you get depressed when you have a major career setback? It's because we think success or financial security or, or, or comfort or something like that is the key to happiness and meaningfulness in our lives. We're created to worship God. Anything else will leave you wanting at some point. Anything else, I can't say this strongly enough, anything else goes against what you were made for. It goes against what you were made for. It's like somebody yelling at their fan because they can't cook eggs on it. It wasn't made for that. It's a failure at that. There is an eternal love and we were made for it. This is the key that fits in your heart. There is an eternal life also. Verse two, for you granted him authority, talking about Jesus, you grant him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All right, that's verses, I mislabeled that. It's verses two and three. I put one and five up there. That's my bad. Verses two and three there. First thing I want you to see here, he's saying, what is he saying? He's saying that this is a life that is given. Right? He, gave, he gives it. And, and if you think about that, you know, if you really kind of analyze that, that can be a little bit difficult. That can be a little bit offensive. Why? Because that's saying your life is lacking. Your life is not quite there. In other words, we have to admit that we're lacking and this is the life we lead. This gift is a little bit of a gentle slap in the face, right? I mean, no one likes to admit things that are negative about themselves. You know, like job interviews. I love how in some job interviews when they go, what's your biggest fault? Remember the office, Michael Scott? My biggest fault is I work too hard. <laughs> yeah, what's your, no one likes to talk about their biggest fault. It's like this. If for your birthday somebody gave you a present, and this is what it was. How to Make Friends. This is a real book. It's not a bestseller. <laughs> Why? Because to accept this as a gift is to admit something. I mean, you can accept it and then it goes in the trash can. But if you accept it and say, you know what? Thank you. I'm going to read this. What are you saying? I need it. I'm a little bit lacking. You get that as a gift. By definition, they're saying they're giving it to you and they're saying there's something lacking. And by accepting it, you're admitting it. It's like, you know, somebody at Christmas gave you a bottle of mouthwash. Right? <laughs> oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. There's a message here, right? And it's a little offensive. You need this badly. 
So it's a gift, and we have to understand that we are admitting something if we're going to accept it. And that's the giving part. Think about this, the eternal part. Eternal means that so much, how do I say that? Eternal means that so much of what we think is important is not important. That's what eternal means. When he says, I give them eternal life, that word eternal is saying, there's a whole lot of things in your life that you think are very important, but they're not eternal. Therefore, they are not important. It won't last. It's like a passing fad. It's like throwback Thursdays, right? When people come out, bring out clothes they used to wear a long time ago, and everybody just kind of laughs at each other. I tried to find a picture. I can't find it. Uh, when, I, when I was a, a young t- a teenager and, and I was just so hip and with it, um, the Beatles uh, came out in the, in the mid to late 60s. They wore Nehru jackets. You guys remember Nehru? Yeah, of course, only the older people are looking at me now. Nehru jackets, they come up and the collar's real stiff, almost like a clerical collar, and it's cut and long sleeve and it comes a little low. And I used to have a picture of me banging a Nehru jacket with some bell-bottom jeans, just looking like the faux shizzle. You know, I was it. I was it, and I knew I was it because I had a Nehru jacket. Eternal means it lasts. You don't see people wearing Nehru jackets very much anymore. Bell-bottoms are back, though. I'm happy about that. Eternal means it's, 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 it's duration. It lasts a long time. But not just that. Eternal means illumination. Like when you're in a dark room and you turn on a light. Right? If you're in a dark room, you can kind of sometimes make out there's some things going on in here or there's something over there. That, but you can't. But you flip on the light. What happens? You see things exactly where they are. But not only that, but you see them more vividly. Right? A dresser in a very dark room is just a shape. You flip on the light, you go, oh my, that is, that's, that's nice. Somebody did a good job on that. You know, you see it better. And this is what eternal is. It's not, it's duration and it's illumination. Let me give you an example. When I was younger and I was uncouth, I used to go to certain types of restaurants a lot. Typically, somewhere in the title of the restaurant was the word buffet. Something like all you can eat. I went to this restaurant once in Richmond when I was a teenager. The Big Mouth Buffet. As a teenager, I was like, that's probably heaven. A Big Mouth Buffet, right? i take that right off here. Yeah. Usually there was something about all you can eat. Usually there was something about at least a buy one, get one free meal. Something about a free dessert. Those are the kind of places I went to. There were establishments that made money on volume, not quality, right? You understand what I'm saying? Then one day, somebody took me to a really nice restaurant. And suddenly, illumination. Illumination happened. This was food on a whole nother level. On a different plane of existence, I was illuminated. Didn't mean I stopped always going to buffets, but I knew there was more. I knew there was more. And that's what the word eternal is telling us. It's duration, but it's also illumination. That's why I can tell you honestly, before I knew Christ, once I was blind, now I see. 
Now I see, I see so much more, so much clearer. And that's what happens to us. That's what it means. And also he says here, he gives them eternal life. And you're like, oh, here he goes. This is going to wind Bob up on Zoe and Bios. You're right. You're right. It's two words for life in the New Testament. One is bios. It's just physical existence, breathing, eating, going to the bathroom, just physical existence. And one is zoe. Zoe means a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life that is fulfilling. And when you tack eternal onto it now, you bring it into this realm of there is this life that God has for us that is duration and illumination on a whole nother level, a different plane. Jesus keeps talking about this. You say, why does Bob keep talking? It's because Jesus keeps saying it. If he says it a lot, I'm going to say a lot. So suck it up and stick with me here. I mean, you can take it up with him if you want. <laughs> Good luck with that. So Jesus is saying here in a very real way, he's saying in some way you're dead and you need life. If you are not a follower of Christ, you, you are dead and you need life. And it's a different level of life, a different order of life. Now, this is something, this is another one of those things. We kind of know it, but we haven't always put it together. There are different levels. There are different orders of life in our world. There's plant life, vegetable life, right? That's an order of life. It's a low order of life, but it's an order of life. There are animals. Animals are a higher order. For an animal to live at the level of a plant life would be a step down. There'd be something wrong, right? And then there are human beings. Human beings are a higher level, a higher order of life. To live as an animal, as a human being, is to merely exist, is to merely eat and drink and go to the bathroom and laugh and cry sometimes and just be exist. That's not what God made us for. Now, how do we know about these different levels? Well, first, the different levels are, are shown by two things, I think. Well, more than that, but let me just pick two. There's a, the, the idea of the awareness of reality, the idea of sensation. Plants have sensation, but not a lot. They're very dimly, in a sense, aware of the reality around them. That's just that, that's their level. Now, animals have more. Animals have five senses. So they're more aware than a plant. But human beings, now human beings have the five senses, but also there's a different level of awareness, like beauty and ugliness. If you take a dog to the top of Crested Butte Mountain and let that dog look out over that view, it's not gonna go, there is a God. It's not gonna do it because it has the senses, but at a lower level than a human being. We see beauty, we see ugliness, we see justice, we see injustice. We sense right and wrong. We sense past and future. So we're at a different level in terms of in, in terms of, of reality, uh, awareness of reality, sensation. The second one is this different level of, of I've seen it called mastery. And, and what I mean by that is the, the awareness of why I do something. Plants have instincts. 
And animals have instincts. They have drives. They have processes in varying degrees. They just happen in their lifespan. It's just a part of who they are. But humans, while having those instincts and those drives and those processes, humans have this ability to go, why? Why did I do that? Why did they do that to me? Why did that happen? Self-reflection. This is an ability that, that human beings have, and it's a deeper awareness. So here's the thing. It's a deeper awareness of reality than an animal or a plant. See, these are the, this, is, this is what makes us different. And Jesus is saying, spiritually, you're dead. There's a higher level available to you, a higher level of sensation, a higher level of reality, awareness of reality. So what happens when a person gets saved, when a person partakes of this eternal life that Jesus is talking about? Does, our, does, does their IQ go up? I wish, but no. Does their eyesight get better? You know, like, like suddenly I can look back and say, wait, there's somebody in that parking lot over there. They're talking about me. I can hear, right? No, it does. I still, it's just a wall. I can't tell if there's somebody in the parking lot or not. But with eternal life, what happens I suddenly go, I understand something. I understand more about true holiness. I understand more about true love. I understand more about glory. I understand more about true life, true righteousness, true hope, true meaning and purpose. I was blind and now I see. Sometimes it comes, it's a, we all, we've talked about this before. Jesus has talked about this. This is a process. We grow into this. But this is what happens when a person is given eternal life by Jesus Christ. And this understanding makes all the difference. Have you ever, have you ever maybe here, maybe another place, you know, you've heard somebody speak, you've heard the scripture, and you walk out feeling like, God spoke to me. I know what I need to do. I know some of you do, because some of you walk out and say, has my wife been talking to you about this, right? Is there, has somebody been calling you and giving you information on the side? And, and I'm telling you, no, no. I, I usually try to remember to say, no, your wife didn't talk to me, but I think God's talking to you. I think that's who's doing the talking. You, you, you sense that. Or maybe, maybe sometime you've, we've, we've sang here or maybe somewhere else. Or you listen to it on your, and you just feel so moved. Not just the music, the words, they grip you. And you go, I mean, I tell people, I've been to tons of concerts in my life. I, I still enjoy going to concerts. But I've never walked out, you know, uh, walked out of a concert at the, at the, uh, at the big farmer's uh, thing over there in Virginia Beach or wherever. I never walked out and, and, and listened to somebody, you know, that I like to listen to or that my kids like to listen to, so they drag me to it. And walk out going, I need to be a better husband. I need to be a better husband. Man, you know, that was great. I need to be a better, I don't. I walk out of here sometimes going, I need to be a better husband. God has spoken to me through, through the message, through the words, through, through the music. We're opening, it's because there's another reality. There's another level of awareness. Spiritual truths come to life. They change you. They create a desire in you. We will still fail. Sometimes we still blow it. But then we confess, we move on, and we want to follow God. That's that next level. There's a deeper awareness of the reality that's going on all around us. 
a deeper awareness of the reality that the world does not control me. A deeper awareness of the reality of the truth of who I am. And that through the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life, I can live above my circumstances. I don't have to be controlled by my circumstances. Most people in this world, they're controlled by their circumstances. They're, they're like the old pinball games. The pinball wizard has, they're the ball. And they just go and they go, bam, whoa, that flipper hurt. Boink, oh, wow. Ching, 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 ching. And they're just banging all around, going, this is my life. And God says, no, you can be above this. There is more. Christianity at its core is a life, not a moral code. There is a moral code in Christianity. But that moral code is simply the outworking of the core, the life that is in us. I mean, everyone has a moral code. Does it change you? No, it doesn't. Here's what changes us. Verse three. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God is to have life. And this is the higher level that we're talking about, to have a relationship with God. Notice something. He, he identifies something that I think is very key there. The only true God. You know what that is? That's doctrine right there. That's doctrine. Christianity is not just doctrine, but Christianity is not no doctrine. There's doctrine that informs us. And then knowing him, we are taking that doctrine and we're taking a step of faith and saying, I believe. I want you in my life. And suddenly... It's like cresting that mountain. Vistas open up of possibilities open up before you of what God wants to do with your life. All right. There's an eternal love. There's an eternal life. This love and this life have an eternal cost. And I just want to, I'm not even going to read, just look at the beginning of verse one or the middle there. Father, the hour has come. And then a couple lines down. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus is saying, see that phrase, the hour has come. That phrase, you look, it, it, John is shot full of it. The hour has come, my time. And, and, and remember the wedding at Cana and, and Mary talked to him and he says, no, why are you doing this? My hour is not yet, not yet. His brothers say, go to Jerusalem. You build public relation firms, get in everybody, get in everybody's ear, get public, get known. You know, have a, go public. Offer stock, right? And Jesus says, it's not the time. Not yet. My hour's not come. And this happens over and over and over. Time has not come. Hour has not come. Boom. And now he says, oh, this is it. Hour's come. This is what I've been working towards my whole life. The cross. I'm finishing the work. He's saying, I'm at the finish line. He spent his whole life doing this, glorifying God in this earth up into the final glorification at the cross. And there's something that, this, this kind of shakes me, I guess a little. The very end of verse five, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He's pointing to his eternal nature, but he's also saying there's something missing right now. 
And I want to be real careful as I talk about this because you can walk easily on things like this. You can walk directly into heresy. But I just want you to see something here. Jesus is sensing, ah, I want to, make, I want to get back to where we were. I gave things up by coming to this earth. I gave things up by coming here. There's a loss, kind of a purposeful weakening in a sense. Paul talks a little bit about this. He talks more than a little, but he talks about this in Philippians chapter two. And uh, let me, yeah, there you go, this is it. Who being in very nature God, oh, let me just say this real quick. This is just one of the cool things. We talked about this in the book of Philippians. Uh, this little passage here is Paul quoting a, a, a creed or a hymn. In other words, we think, we think the book of Philippians was probably written about 50 to 60 AD, but he's quoting something that's much earlier. He's quoting something they say in church together, like a creed, like they all recite together. And so, so, and so he says, who being in his very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what is he saying here? What is, what is Paul trying to teach us here? He's, He's saying what Jesus is praying about. This is what Jesus did. He humbled himself and he let, walked straight to the cross. He became, and I want to use this very, in a sense, almost, he became finite. I remember reading one guy, he said, Jesus is God who has become huggable. You can touch him. You can hug him. He restricted himself in some way. Isaiah says he became unattractive. He became despised. I have brought you glory, he says. My death is for your glory. Now glorify me with the glory I had before. That idea to serve each other, to point to each other, to eliminate each other, to diminish yourself for another. I think it's expressed best when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. That's the ultimate expression of glory because that's the expression that leads to the cross. All right, I need to wrap up. This is it. Two quick, two quick ideas, and they will be quick. This life with God, this Zoe life, and we've talked about this, so it's, it's communal. It's relational with God and with each other. This is important for us as followers of Christ in this church. With, with God and with each other. That's, that's why. That's, I'm about to get electrocuted. Last words. It's relational. It's communal. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, um, this is important for us. This is important for us. We don't just come here on Sunday morning to worship. We come to be with each other. We need each other. You may think no one needs you, and I'm telling you, people need you. You need us, and we need you. It's important. And uh, Jesus is talking to God about this. He's communing with God. That's why prayer is so important. Second thing is, real quick, it's about servanthood. This is where joy is. In our culture, we say live for yourself, chase your dreams, figure out who you are. But servanthood is the heart of God, and we see it in Jesus. Servanthood is the heart of God. And this is what's interesting. As we get further into this prayer, there's a theme that's going to come up. Joy. Joy in servanthood whether it's the littlest things, whether it's serving by picking up chairs, serving by helping in a nursery, serving by, by a pot of chili, whatever it is, 
There's joy in serving others. Our culture tells us to pursue life with everything. Jesus said, if you pursue life, you won't find it. But if you pursue me, suddenly you will have life. The more you love and serve, the more you will see who you are and what you are here for and how God wants to use you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. Help us never, never to take it for granted. Lord, thank you for this time together to honor and worship you. Help us to find that joy you have for us. Help us to find that purpose and meaning you have for us. Give us, through your spirit, the strength and the power to, to find these things and to be encouraged and invigorated by them and to want to even serve you more. Lord, thank you that you promised that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.